Hi, I'm Rachel, and I'm excited to mic it up. Welcome to Mike It Up with GoodBed.com's Jeff Cassidy. So when that's the case, it becomes harder just psychologically to make a change. And Mike Magnuson. If you're doing those things, you can be competitive long term. Just when you thought these number crunching data lovers couldn't get any nerdier, they started a podcast. And I know this is pretty controversial, but this is why we're having a podcast, right? But if you want to be smart about how the mattress shopping journey is changing and what retailers and manufacturers should be doing about it, well then, man, have you ever found your people? Because right now, it's time to mic it up. I never really said most of my camera is. I'm here, like, closer I'm from. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel, I'm feeling it. I've been both of you guys. Viewers, That's please true. remember, I'm a, I'm a mother of two kids under three. <laughs> <laughs> well, you look great. Let you look amazing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, did you have a chance to listen to any of the other episodes? Uh, I did. Okay. Yeah, you guys are actually pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> Unintentionally, but yet funny. <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, if you it's like nerd humor is your your jam, which it is. Yeah. <laughs> nerd humor is definitely it. Once you accept that premise. For us that just qualifies as for us that just qualifies as humor. Since right. we're nerds. That's what so that's exactly. Yeah. I can relate. Right, exactly. <laughs> All right, let's see. So um one thing we sometimes forget to do, or at least we've only done this three times, but <laughs> we forgot to do one of the three times is an introduction. So I want to make sure we don't forget uh-huh. to do that in, in this case. Um, we have our guest here today. Wait, by the way, Rachel Stewart, do you go by? Or do you go by your full three yeah, names? I do. I do Stewart. It's just easier to spell. Okay. <laughs> Got it. All right. So our guest here today, Rachel Stewart, we're delighted to have her. She is coming up on nine years at Gardner White. Is that right, right? Yeah. Okay. So uh, previously, I just want to, I like to give a little bit of background on what, what people did before their current jobs. You were in the government, public policy, is that fair to say, um, for I did, yeah, a number I did of years? Yeah, I did for, for a while before. So solar energy was my jam. Okay. Was that your jam throughout that time that you were working in like the Clinton Initiative? And... For the most part, clean, clean energy and then moved into solar. So Yeah. Got it. Don't trust me. And if you want like wind or energy efficiency, solar is really what I know. Very cool. And we should also mention for those people listening who you know are not uh, near a Gardner White store, Gardner White, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong about any of these things, Gardner White is the largest furniture store in Michigan, furniture retailer in Michigan. You got it. 12 stores focused around the Detroit metro area. It is it was founded over 100 years ago. Yep. Is that right? By someone named Gardner yeah. and someone named White. I'm going to go with... Gonna go <laughs> kind of a team effort, perhaps. Fill fill in fill in any yeah. other details I'm missing there. I, it is a family business, correct? Sure. Why would, why would you do it? Why would you do this for you? Yes, I would like that. <laughs> that would, yes. I keep inviting it, but uh, but you're but you're enjoying <laughs> watching me struggle more. through it with whatever I could remember. <laughs> so I, I wanted, didn't want to deprive you of in that. Ten minutes. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, we're uh, family business because. Biggest retailer in Michigan. Uh, I'm fourth generation, so I don't know what's the line. We were supposed to be bankrupt two decades or two generations ago, <laughs> but somehow still here. <laughs> um, yeah, and it, you know, so it's 1912 in this area, and it's sort of interesting when you get into history because there's so many companies, so many locally based and operated companies. They're all founded in that general neighborhood, and I think that's really a reflection of what was happening in the auto industry in Detroit at the time. Yeah. 
that that's great well it's, i think it's awesome to have also um you know the the uh family connection here the family business connection here because it's such, something so common in the furniture industry so it's 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 great to have that mm -hmm. perspective so one thing we like to do to start things off if you don't mind is a little bit of a lightning round you good with that okay Okay. Depends on it, the lightning it, round. It's just meant to be fun, break the ice. And so. Cool. All right, good. So we're going to start it off, and it's just quick questions. Yeah, have fun with it. No, no wrong answers. All right, uh, number one, you have two kids right now, right? Mm-hmm. Which one's your favorite? I'm just kidding. This. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs> Sorry, I had to just because we you seemed so nervous that I was going to ask a tricky question, so I had to just <laughs> favorite summer activity. Ooh, 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 swimming. All right, best music decade of the past 100 years. Oh. You know, it's so much easier to answer this before you get into the history of them all. <laughs> I'm going to go with the 80s. All right. It was glorious. Yeah, it was pretty glorious. If, if for no other reason than the hair. Favorite holiday. <laughs> Favorite holiday Thanksgiving. That's a very, that's a very, uh, I think everyone we've asked. Yeah, that it's question an apropos to, one. Has that, yeah. Yeah. No one, by the way, well, no one has said Black Friday. Friday. Oh, that's fun. That's good. Um, all right. Scale of one to 10. How good of a sleeper are you? Eight. Solid. Favorite pizza toppings? Ooh, classic margarita. Oh, wow. Simple. That is classic. Um, what is something, what is a non condiment that you always have in your refrigerator? Ooh. Not much. <laughs> so it's like my fridge. <laughs> Yogurt? Yesterday's Chinese food? <laughs> We're to barbecuing, so I don't have to clean it. Yesterday, that's very, that's ambitious. Try like last week, Mike. <laughs> All right. Uh, favorite toy as a kid? Oh. You know, honestly, I've, I think, oh, those big blocks that you could build with. Oh, okay. Like the, the Duplo the blocks? Ones, the cardboard ones we all have. Oh, the cardboard ones. So, yeah, so you, you can make a fork. You, you were making stuff yes. that you could get boom. into and then knock it over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> There's more in the demolition. Got it. Yeah. Build it up to knock it down. If you had mm -hmm. a walk-up song, like a major league baseball player, what would it be? Oh, geez. The outfield something. Something by the outfield. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. So like a baseball-themed song. You'd be That's right on good. point. Yeah. I like it. Now I'm going to go back mm -hmm. and Google Center field. songs after this. Center field is... is there's, some, there's some good writing music in there. Yeah. Uh, okay, sticking with sports, since it's the Olympic year here, what in what non-sport activity would you be most likely to win an Olympic medal? Non-sport? Non-sport. <laughs> Sales, BS. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Sales help. Sales and the gold help. medal for oh, BS on. goes to Rachel Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> oh, say can. <laughs> uh, all right. What's something that made you smile recently? My two-year-old looks at me. She goes, no, mom, that's not for me. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. That's impressive. Is that something uh, you or I don't know. That's somebody said? So in, in response to what? Would you, in response to what kind of a oh, thing? Oh, she all the time. Just in general, like... 
Rachel is trying to sell her furniture. <laughs> yeah, is that is that is that her response to your sales BS? <laughs> Got it. Let's look it up and get moving. No, nothing. That's funny though. Isn't it supposed to be the the terrible twos? Yours are the polite twos. <laughs> yeah, no, she's very she's, polite. That's a, yeah, that's good. Polite, but still resistant to uh, what's yeah. being asked. Yeah, but at least in a pleasant in a pleasant way. It's kind right, of nice. right. Yeah, it's yeah. hardly terrible. It's, it's followed by "I love you, mom." <laughs> the hard part is not laughing at this one. I love you, but I'm not doing that. <laughs> all right so all right let's start with a little bit of just uh continuing a little bit on your background uh i think it's just again i think it's interesting because there's a lot of people uh, in family businesses and multi-generational businesses in this industry you grew you essentially grew up in this business can you share any of your earliest memories of the business oh sure well so i think yeah so every dinner both my parents work in the business which i think is pretty unique so, you know, most, or at least some people would come home and at least get something of a rest, but not us. So I think I remember distinctly every dinner conversation was about a marketing campaign and usually you'd be debating it. <laughs> so I, From I your youngest age, point, you remember this? hundred <laughs> percent. Absolutely. No, I remember looking at print ads at the dining room table. Absolutely. So I remember, I think someone, you know, back in the day before everything was digital, you had to drop off the ads to review them. And I remember um, an outside advertising agent did that to my parents. And of course, you know, my parents were good parents. We felt empowered to express an opinion. So I took it about myself to express my opinion about these ads at like nine to this guy who, you know, like, oh, this great, <laughs> it's this great professional in this space uh, with a ton of credibility. So I do distinctly recall that because my parents walked me aside to say why maybe this wasn't appropriate. Um, did you by chance use the words, this ad is not for me? No, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Got it. And how, well, so yeah, now right. that's interesting. So, how did your how did your relationship with the business then evolve over time? Like from the like from the time you were nine and and being told maybe maybe your input is better to share with your parents, but not with outsiders. <laughs> <laughs> like what? How did that? How did it evolve over time? Like through high school, college, and and, and beyond. Well, I think you got to, I got to, I mean, so what you see at home, which is what your parents are debating is very different from when you're there watching, you know, watching people do their thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, you sort of moved from learning just from sort of the inside baseball stuff to actually seeing what we do and really getting a lot of respect for the different areas. And I think. Did you have you summer know, jobs? Like, my big take is retail parts. There's a lot of moving parts. Did, did you have summer jobs with the business as a kid? I did. I remember I starting really young. I was I'd be filing uh, in the back, and then I remember my first real punishment. At some point, I took it upon myself to strip the wallpaper in my bedroom and paint. Uh, though I, you know, read some books, did a decent job, but it was an okay enough job that my punishment punishment was painting the back offices at Gardner White. Ah, I think that was my punishment. <laughs> Gosh, that's a very fitting punishment. Yeah. We're going to put these these, inst these painting instincts to good use. Could have been a reward, actually, too. I think I actually liked it if I yeah. were. I mean, kind of cathartic. Yeah. <laughs> so now, was it, uh, do you, it, was it always the plan that you were going to go work in government or public policy and then come back? No, not always the plan. Not at all. No, I think... No, I think my parents were really smart in that sense of strongly encouraged me to go do other things, 
have a career finder path. Mm-hmm. And I think when I said I was interested in coming back, I think they were more in shock than anything else. Um, Talk about what led you to so that decision. Well, I think I was at the point where I was going to go, I was going to go into the private sector and clean tech. And then when you really get to it first, you know, the day to day and like you're, you're, you're in the middle, in the thick of it, you know, the, the day to day might sound glamorous, but really isn't. <laughs> and, and the probability of success is like that big. And I just didn't feel like I had the, the big business acumen at the time. And, you know, independent of anything you'd want to do, like who's better to teach you than your parents. So I thought, you know, let's, let's try this one on for size and see if it fits. Nice. And when you got there mm-hmm. or since you've been there, was there mm-hmm. anything that really surprised you the relative to maybe what you would have expected the experience would be like? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think I really do think, I think retail is a lot of complexities, uh, even in the best days, let alone, you know, and when the world is changing as it certainly has been in the past two years, but always really is. Um, so I think there's, you know, for retail to work, a lot needs to happen right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the, that's the biggest thing that struck me. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, we sell things, we can be great on a sales floor, but there's about 80 other things you also need to nail to really grow a business. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, you mentioned that how much things have changed in the last couple of years. Uh, obviously part of that, uh, relates to the consumer and you know what their experience has been and how that how they interface with your store and so forth um i mean what what can you share about what you like how you see the consumer journey having changed over your time in the industry but maybe in particular these last couple of years well so i think i mean COVID in particular i think it's just i think we may some you know in some sense i think it's overblown but I i do think people are just they're home more they're using their things more they need more functionality so i think we've seen more interest in really investing in really comfortable, durable product. So for betting, that has a huge impact. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one. Also, I just think how we, how consumers use the web is just constantly changing and will continue to, you know, in the past, when I joined, I remember the debate of, do you put your website in your TV spots? Because why would you direct them to your website, not your store? If they're already interested in you, like now that's just like, that seems like such an antiquated conversation. It really wasn't that long ago. <laughs> it is crazy. Yeah, that was all in the last nine years that we went from that debate to where we are now, where that feels that does feel right. With like, why would yeah? First, you wouldn't, but yeah, there's eight things that are remarkable about that conversation. <laughs> so I think I really think that's the biggest, and I think I don't know that anyone's really figured out in brick and mortar how to really dance uh, with digital, but I think there's definitely some clues as to how that evolves. What do you think in terms of like the changes that were brought about by the pandemic, which ones do you think are going to be sticky and actually are going to last? I mean, whether it regards to the, the demand levels or the way that people shop. Well, I think, I think this was, de- this definitely spurred the digital transformation for all consumers uh, without a doubt when you had, you know, so many people over 65 now buying online and just realizing how, how easy it is. Um, I don't think that's going to change. Um, you know, things like the grocery store. I haven't been to the grocery store in a year and a half. It's delightful. Um, <laughs> I think that'll stick. That explains the lack of things in no your food. refrigerator, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's, you know what's amazing is I know how frequently I order groceries online and still there's nothing. <laughs> um, 
And what sure. what about business wise? So it, we were you just talked about the consumer and how they've changed and the internet adoption accelerating and shopping online accelerating. Were there any changes that you made to the business and how you tackled digital that uh, were particularly successful and that you'll continue on with more than yeah? You I mean, I think like everyone, we pivoted hard into digital um, and it worked. And I think it just for all of us created a renewed focus on it. Um, and I think we were, we're all really learning in our own different ways to run it like we do our sales floors um, with the same focus and intensity and skill uh, team. So, yeah, I think and I, I don't see that going anywhere anytime soon. What is that? Can you elaborate on what that means, like to run it like your sales force? I think in the past, especially in this industry, the way that it was a passive process where it was more just we had the team was more order takers. And we assumed that the furniture on the web would just sell itself. And I think, you know, we certainly don't assume that on a sales floor. And I think now there's, you know, a growing assumption that that doesn't work on the web either. You need a skilled team to help answer questions, you know, in many different ways via chat, via the phone, uh, FaceTime, you name it. Got it. So really adding a lot of more interactive elements to your web experience. Yep. Got With real product experts. With real people who can, yeah, people who can really help. Got it. That makes sense. And by the way, I'm curious, too, because you're the first, uh, at least on the podcast, the first full line furniture retailer that we've talked to. Um, mm -hmm. I'm wondering, did the pandemic affect anything as it relates to, you know, all the cross selling that happens within the store, like attachment of mattresses to furniture shopping or, or vice versa? Did the pandemic affect any of those tr trends? You know, not for us, but I think. As you get, I mean, we've always taken betting really seriously and always bring it up in every conversation. So uh, I think, you know, our attachment, our attachment was always probably pretty high as a result. Mm -hmm. We we believe in, we believe in betting. We talk up good sleep all the time. Was yeah. that the case before you came back into the business nine years ago? That was already the case? Or? Yeah, that's part of our DNA. Let's talk a little bit about, you've had a pretty tumultuous year, This the the furniture retail marketplace mm -hmm. in Michigan <laughs> for those people who aren't aware, obviously like the, so your longtime competitor art van pretty much shocked the industry when they announced in March, 2020 before the pandemic that they were, they were liquidating, not just going bankrupt, but liquidating. And then, then the retailer that stepped in and replaced them, uh, at least in some of their stores also has already since come and gone. And I'm sure, by the way, I'm, that you would not want to speak ill of competitors or whatever. Um, so I'm not asking anything about that. But, but what can you share about just the experience of having gone through this? I, I can imagine, obviously, that it opens up opportunities for sure. But at the same time, it had to have been a tough thing to be trying to maintain a stable ship while essentially uh, there's a large competitor in the marketplace going from like liquidation to startup to liquidation. <laughs> uh, that's that adds a lot of you know, just uh, uh, uncertainty and you know, kind of chaos, I would think, sure. to the market. What's what's it been like to go through that? Well, I think, I mean, so first, uh, there's a, there was, you know, you, you could do 20 podcasts just on this topic. Our band was hugely formidable. We have a lot of respect for them and learned a lot from watching that experience. So there's a ton there. In this market in particular, you know, you, you really felt bad for the members of the team who were caught flat-footed going into a pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, we were lucky we could absorb many of them. Uh, but I think that, you know, just as an industry, that's just hard to watch when, you know, it's a small industry saying so you know the people. Yeah. And then for consumers, it was hard because, you know, it just creates uncertainty when there's consumers who 
put very sizable deposits and aren't aren't getting those back. Yeah. So it just I mean I think it, I think it's just that we talk up our our history anyway, but I it certainly doesn't hurt uh, to to have the conversation that we've been here since 1912, you know, family owned and operated. We are real people in this community who are going nowhere to have just create consumer confidence. Because consumers at this point, I mean, even if whether they were directly affected by this or just heard about people being affected by this, they must have a sense of like feeling kind of gun shy, perhaps about uh, making big ticket purchases, having watched two major retailers go through this over the past year. And you've had, I imagine. Yeah, sure. And I mean, one in particular with a long-term, had, you know, a lot of respect in the community with a long-term legacy. So absolutely. Yeah. So you're, you're, I think that's great. You're, you're in a fortunate position to be able to, to have this long history to give people comfort in a time like that. Well, and I think that's where it helps. I mean, part of the, part of the history there, I mean, part of the, the lesson there is, I think, being locally owned and operated does make a difference when when you when you live in the place where you work so i think that's part of the story and the lesson that you know it, it's a model that works at least for furniture retail yeah i mean for better or worse i think that the the retail industry is likely to see more of this uh across elder markets mm-hmm. what do you think is there any advice you'd have for anyone in terms of how best to prepare for this type of situation I don't, honestly, I don't think there's any preparation. I think you do the same thing that you would do every day anyway, which is build a strong, sustainable company. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, forget everything that happened in this market, but just COVID taught us all to be nimble and to be able to flex. Yeah. And you also, you bought one of the former art van stores, right? Wasn't that uh, Rochester Hills? Yeah. We got Rochester. We got Rochester Hills. We're now opening the old Canton store within a few weeks. And did so. you have you found so it, Rochester Hills has been what like half a year so far or something like that? Almost. Yep. Have Have you seen that there was a customer base kind of that came with that store, or was it just the same as if you put a brand new store uh, that you built yourself in that location? Well, it was a new location for Art Van. Uh, well. Okay. They had just opened um, that but, in 2019 or something, right? Like, yeah, it was, the, yeah, it was their latest. It was their latest store, so which was great from our perspective. Yeah, because it was. Yeah. Very easy store to open. Yeah, that's great. Going back to the 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 just the demand that you've seen, like you mentioned, people investing in their homes and so forth. Um, I'm always curious to get people's perspective on. You know, how long do you expect that to last? Like, what are you guys planning for in, in that regard? You know, I think, I think that I think through twenty twenty one, the economy is going to be really strong, and we're going to see, we're going to see probably more demand than we have supply, um, based on everything happening in the world. You know, I think I think twenty twenty two will start off really strong, and then, and then we'll see. Um, but I do think people, just in general, I, I do think one result of the pandemic is just people think about their homes in a new way. Um, that they just didn't before. So I don't think we're going to go back. I think I think COVID demand will stay higher than it was. Got it. You think we'll, that we'll equalize on a steady state that's kind of higher than it was before, mm-hmm. just in terms of people valuing uh, the, yep. the comfort of their homes? I think so. And I, I also don't think, I mean, tell me what you guys think, but I, I don't see everyone going back to work five days a week in an office. So that just means people are going to be home more. 
Yeah, I think that's for sure what we see. I mean, the Bay Area is a <laughs> maybe even an extreme example of that, where I think the companies have been super lenient about return to work policies. So mm -hmm. I think that's for sure we expect to see that here. I mean, but I do wrestle, though, particularly with the mattress category, I wrestle with, you know, to what degree was this, as you said, just people basically increasing their share of wallet to the home? And to what degree was it people pulling forward purchases that maybe just otherwise would have happened next year, right? Or to what degree was it perhaps uh, maybe just new households being formed at a higher rate than we've seen in the past? You know, mm -hmm. we do know that millennials are kind of, you know, coming out, going out and forming new households. They're a big generation. So may maybe... There's all three of those, but I guess I wrestle to a degree with what's the mix there? Because obviously the extent to which it's been pulled forward would affect future years, right? Um, it's like the opposite of pent up demand and the extent to which it's just increased share of wallet to your point earlier about people's putting a higher importance on this, that would bode more like this is a more long-term lasting change. So. I wonder, with particularly with mattresses, to what degree the mix, you know, how that mix shakes out, and I'm not sure that there right. is any hard data on that. Yeah, I could I could hypothesize, but that yeah, you're getting what you pay for. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it, you're you're right that it it's different for mattresses than for furniture, right? Is uh, furniture you have the spending more time at home, working at home, that opens up a new category of furniture that I need to buy. I need a desk to work at. I need a comfortable chair to sit in. But mattresses, the fact that I work from home doesn't change, doesn't make me need two mattresses. So I think that that um, kind of long-term effect could be very different for mattresses as for furniture. Yeah. Um, just on the uh, distribution side, I'm curious to know, you guys have done some innovative things like you had the Best Buy partnership is that still is that still going? That's not. We were that's, that's right when I joined actually. So it's, it was a while ago. We were the national pilot within two Best Buys. We had what eight and ten thousand square feet in two different stores to sell furniture, which was hugely successful. And now they're doing. Just they're now doing. Um, they just seven, they took, they did it themselves. Took that over, and they're now selling furniture themselves. Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. But the, I thought it was also mm -hmm. went the other way that you guys were selling electronics through like Best Buy, maybe even had staff in your stores or something. Well, yeah, how we started the relationship was we were selling we well. So the story goes that uh, the world collapsed in 2008, 2009. And of course, you know, our big concern is just being in the yellow pages the following year. Um, and we really we leaned in hard to what the industry later did with uh, big picture packages. You know, buy these five pieces of furniture, get a get a flat screen along with, and Best Buy was our supplier. So I, th we were I think at a time the I think it was the third largest B two B account that Best Buy had. I mean, we just we cranked through those TVs, um, and promoted them really heavily. Yeah. So as a result, we had this great relationship with Best Buy. So as they were looking for a national pilot to test furniture, we were sort of a an obvious partner in that regard. Yeah. Do you see, I mean, did, did you learn anything from that experience that would lead to maybe other innovative out of the box type partnerships or did, it, did you learn that maybe those things 
generally are not going to work or like anything you could share about that experience that would be useful? Well, so first, I mean, when it comes to betting, you learned that it was hugely successful in betting because, I mean, we all know this, it just uh, increased the buying cycle. So, you know, lots of people aren't sleeping comfortably, but it takes a deliberate choice to go into a furniture store or betting shop. So it was really effective there. So meaning having a mattress um, in a Best Buy where people are likely to go more frequently just got people to think about mattresses sooner than they would have otherwise. Yep. Wow. Oh, I thought you were going to say the other way, which was they were on the fence about when to go get a mattress and the fact that they could get a free TV made them come into the store oh. sooner. <laughs> no, I mean, so but the, the issue with Best Buy is they have these big stores and, you know, they used to have rows of CDs and the huge TVs that then became flat screen. So they just had extra real estate. So this was a test that they did. Um, yeah, you, you found that, you know, people were sleep, sleeping poorly and you could get them on a mattress. Uh, without them consciously being in the market. Got it. So that works that works well. That's a huge takeaway, um, by the way, that, that like just getting people to really focus on their mattress before they otherwise would have ultimately gets them to, I mean, that's a something that a theory that's been postulated many times, but you guys had hardcore data to really show that that works. That's, that's a huge thing. And Tim, Mike, to answer your broader question, no, I think, you know, I think we as a company are always been pretty, pretty innovative and are always open to trying new things with different partners. Some work, some don't. Um, but absolutely. I mean, and we, from our, we learned a lot from that partnership. Um, so you learn. So, so one of the things you learned is that learning is good and that like partnerships that are with innovative partnerships are a good way to do that. That's, that's a good takeaway too. Absolutely. Um, let's talk. We've been talking a little bit about uh, that being a, 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 an innovative way to acquire customers. Customer acquisition is obviously just a huge part of the business. You, as you learned as a youngster at your dining room table. <laughs> um, I mean, tell us about your approach to advertising, it really, and, and, and maybe also how did it change during the pandemic? So we, I mean, so we are very heavy promoters. Um, always have been, always will be. That's that is who we are. Um, in Detroit, TV is hugely important. It's just uh, that that is the vehicle of choice. There's obviously other ever, you know, digital is important. And print, print was important. Now it's different. Um, but that is part of our DNA. So we, we are out there 365 in a very heavy and intense way. Um, and I think it's important. I think, I mean, you need to, people aren't thinking of, out of furniture purchase until they are, and you need to be top of mind. Front of mind. So that's 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 what we think. You know, during the pandemic, with everything happening in the supply chain, you talk to some people who were pulling back their advertising budget because they didn't have the product to supply. Uh, that is just not something we would consider. So your strategy during the pandemic was basically just keep your keep the foot on the gas, the same exact kind of no more, no less. I mean, I mean, we spoke about obviously we spoke about different things. Um, you know, we, we offer same day delivery. That's always part of our message. Uh, we, we offer pretty aggressive financing. That's always part of our message. I mean, we, we believe in sort of diverse, diverse messages mm -hmm. with frequency to hit, hit customers, hot buttons. Mm -hmm. Did you find the media mix change at all during the pandemic or was it just pretty much the same te television centric, uh, with a digital 
support structure kind of thing? It was it, no, it definitely what people were watching was different, and when they were watching it was different. There's no question about okay, that. Okay, so it changed within the medium. It changed as to where people were focused. Yeah. OTT became more important because people had time to binge watch everything. <laughs> right, right. We also noticed that last year you became the the head of the or the primary sponsor of the Detroit Thanksgiving parade. Is that right? Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a fun one. Yeah. So did that? Yeah, by the way, did that parade end up happening last year, or or did it get postponed? Or it had. Well, it was like a TV production. We had we had one. It wasn't it wasn't live, but they did. I mean, given given what was happening in the world, they really did a tremendous job. And it is it's a huge parade, and it gets a huge crowd each year. So that they didn't want those kind of crowds in downtown Detroit was was sensible and the parade company pivoted and they they did it beautifully but we are looking forward to a real parade this year yeah awesome great. and what's and that going to entail coming yeah what are you gonna have a float well, i don't know because we've never done it. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah how you, you must already be working on the float right we have a float so we did the same float for three years okay so that so the one that you did for last year will be the same one for this for this yeah. year Got it's it. huge i can't wait for people to see it and i can't wait for people from the gardner team to dance on it and go down oh so you ne you didn't have a float in it before either obviously you weren't the sponsor before but you didn't have a float in it until last we, year we, I mean, they, they taped the float last year but it didn't right i got it it was a TV set. that's exciting so, are you going to be yes, are you going to be standing on something waving like Crown or no crown? Oh, there's not a chance. And does your, I think if you have if you have the crown, I think your two year old might say that is. Oh no 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 no. But well, in addition, I mean Thanksgiving's so fun because it's Thanksgiving, but it's also if you're a retailer, one of the few days you're actually closed. So we're we're starting to get a much better picture of why Thanksgiving's your favorite holiday. You're going to be on a parade float, waving at people, and the store's closed. <laughs> this is all, yeah. This is all yeah, making sense. <laughs> throwing, throwing out Black Friday flyers as like, right. off the top. Yeah. No. We'll just have the TVs going. That that is cool. That seemed like it was a very big deal. To your point earlier, being involved in the community, that seemed like it was uh, something that the community was very grateful for. You guys stepping up. Yeah, especially in a in a tough year. This is this is a big one. Uh, it, it's a really big one for for Detroit. Um, it's a huge parade. It's sort of, and I think also in this world, it's just sort of a sense of normalcy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know? for sure. This is so going to be a big deal. To it wasn't. It'll be a big marker of a return to normalcy to have that parade back mm -hmm. in full effect this year. Right. That's awesome. Looking forward. I know where I'm going for Thanksgiving next year. <laughs> Detroit. There you go. Come on. Not far from Boston, Jeff. <laughs> Switching gears, I want to talk a little bit about uh, product mix before we before we go uh, run out of time sure. here. So you guys, and, and particularly interested in, in mattresses, so you guys have a, a pretty broad assortment of products. You've got, I'll just for other people's mm -hmm. benefit, you've got Heirloom at the moment, Heirloom Beauty Rest, Beauty Rest Black, iComfort, Purple, Renova Sleep, uh, which is, I believe is a, a house brand. Is that a Gardner White brand? Mm -hmm. yeah. Sealy, Serta Stearns. Tempur-Pedic. And Tempur-Pedic. <laughs> Yeah, I did them in alphabetical order, yeah. not in order of your favorite. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> so uh, obviously, one interesting outlier in that list, sort of, would be that would be purple, since most people still think of them first mm -hmm. and foremost as a D 2 C 
brand. I also know at one point, or if I remember correctly, at one point you'd had Brooklyn bedding on your floor. So you have some mm -hmm. experience with different yep. D2C brands. I'm curious, based on your experience with these brands, do you like what's been your experience with having D2C brands, I guess, first and foremost? And then do you see yourself increasing your floor allocation to D2C brands in the future? Or like, how, how do you see that playing out? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we added purple because I think, I mean, I think why consumers like it and why it's successful is it's something different. Mm -hmm. The grid was just not the same as everything else, um, which is why we added it. It was a real, you know, they have a great, great marketing engine behind them. And I think they're really smart in how they use social media. Um, but it's, it was, a, it was, a, if you look at the product mix, it was just an ad. And I think that's how we evaluate it mm -hmm. is, you know, do you want to sell, do you want to stand behind this product and sell it to consumers? And in that case, the answer was definitely yes. Um, so I think, you know, that's how we'll keep, that's how we'll keep looking at it. And I think hats off to them. Cause again, they, I think we're going to have to keep innovating. So there's a story to tell behind these big white boxes. Um, and that's the game. I also think, I mean, there's a ton of, there's a lot of more innovation happening uh, in the motion bases. Um, and I think that that really needs to continue um, to keep this category interesting. What do you, yeah, what are you seeing consumers asking for? Well, I think, well, so a few things. I was thinking before, I, you know, while driving in, but I was thinking about where the opportunities lie. And I think, I think, I mean, first you lie on a motion base. They're a lot, they make a mattress a lot more comfortable. So I think it's, there's a great, there's a great story there to tell. We see people selling a lot of them. There's a lot of sleep apps. In my opinion, they're all pretty similar mm -hmm. to sort of tell you how much you slept without any actual information on the health of your sleep, which actually scientists know a ton about. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, over time, that's sort of, that's where the opportunity is. It's not just, you know, six hours, 23 minutes, but, but what, tell, tell me about the quality of your sleep. And then I think the other benefit of sort of smart bases is you can, it, you can create a world where sleep isn't just reactive. I wake up, I'm not comfortable, I move this. It sort of supports you through the full sleep cycle to help create a better night's sleep. Mm -hmm. So to me, and you can sort of see in some of the technology that, you know, little seed, seedlings of this, but to me, that's, that's sort of where the ball's going. Basically an interactive system that's monitoring you and preemptively adjusting before you wake up. Yep. Makes sense. Got it. Well, yeah, that's that's a hugely promising prospect. Although, is there anything close to that, really? Uh, I mean, I know we have the snoring, anti-snoring that reacts at the moment. That's, that's, I think that's the first step. Yeah. Okay. But it seems to me, I mean, there's, again, there's a ton of science here. We just need to link it with technology, which, I mean, every sector does. And the question is how well and how fast. Yeah. And at what cost. But I don't yeah. think I don't think there's anyone out there who doesn't what do you see? I mean, what do you hear from consumers in terms of their appetite for that? I mean, like I, th this definitely feels to me like the ex the kind of thing that falls into that. What was it? Um, I guess it was Henry Ford who said, if I asked consumers what they want, they would have said faster horses. Um, or was that Henry <laughs> Ford? I think it was Henry Ford who said that, you know, because I don't think people are coming into your store, I guess, asking like, hey, do you have a bed that's going to like respond to my movements and adjust accordingly to help me sleep better? But like, I guess right. when you tell that story to people, they're pretty receptive or you think they would be, I, I mean, what, what, how do you, yeah, I mean, I think there's not a person out there. Yeah. I don't think there's anyone out there that doesn't want to sleep better. I think it's, you know, our job as an industry to work with key vendors to tell that story well. Um, 
and what, what the benefits are. I mean, I think we sort of like, if you look at most ads now, you sort of, you say the word sleep, you don't say that much about it, but I think there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot more there. I mean, to me, if you're marketing to women, talk about all the benefits of sleep, including anti-aging, like there's a lot of documented evidence there right. and a lot of, lead with lot anti-aging. Of <laughs> yeah. Right, there's, a, there's a lot there of industries built up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think that pitch works with men too, by the way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm confident. Hundred <laughs> percent. I agree with you though that the that the key to these sleep trackers is like they've got to become they've got to result in something actionable, and and the actionable thing could be something that happens passively to you, like it just enhances your sleep experience without you having to do anything, or it could be you know, but where the action is being taken that. Uh, on your behalf, in other words, as opposed to by you. But at a minimum, they need to at least give me something that I can do actionable, you know, because right now it's just this data, like you said, that has really no, to me, no insight attached to it. You know, and there's no causality. There's nothing I can extract from it that goes, that I didn't already know or couldn't already hypothesize on my own. Like, oh yeah, like I slept badly because it was noisy uh, and, or I slept badly because... Um, I had six cups of coffee in the afternoon. Right. Or like, but every morning at, or, you know, I wake up every day at three and then, you know, turn this direction or I move my, you know, my knees out. Like there's things you can infer. Uh, and there's a clear next level for the technology. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. If they can, and if they can start to pull that, those insights out of the data to let me know about them, that would make them more actionable for me and maybe better yet to your point, if they can just build that, those insights into the product so the product knows what to do with them then that would be mm-hmm. even better and that probably brings yeah. it it's equivalent of like you know it's a little creepy i think but helpful is when google maps you get in your car and it tells you you know best route home yeah or best route to drive in. that's true like that's a great analogy yeah, actually because helpful. when there was navigation uh you know people once the actions just kind of got done for you like where you didn't even have to think about it. That's when really that type of stuff really took off. It was just like, okay, I, it's just literally telling me turn right, turn left, whatever. Then people really adopted that. Um, I'm going, going back to the whole uh, brand mix thing. I mean, I, I guess I wanna talk a little bit more about private label brands because you don't have a lot of private label brands and that's an area where a lot of the industry a lot of people we talk to are like oh yeah as we move into this world where more and more manufacturers are feeling a lot of cases out of necessity maybe that they need to sell direct to have a direct relationship with with customers whether to get reviews or just to Mm -hmm. help their product innovation cycles um and they're seeing the success that d2c guys are having by by virtue of the direct relationships they've got with consumers, even in in their in-store sales, they're 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 benefiting from those relationships. So in that world mm-hmm. where where there's a lot of brands that are going direct, uh, a lot of people think that the answer or one of the answers is more private label. You know, like having a really big mix of a lot of private label. What's your view of private label? What's your view of the the future, uh, and uh, sure. how do you think it fits in? I think it really does. So we have a huge betting aisle. Um, and I think our view is we, you know, we want, we, there's no one in Metro Detroit who could not come in and find a comfortable mattress 
in, within their budget. Um, I think to the extent that there are gaps in that mix that we see, we, we would and believe in private label, would and will believe in private labeling. Um, but I think, I think people come to us because our, our sales team is truly excellent when it comes to uh, product knowledge embedding. Um, and I think our job is to find the best product for that person, period, um, and to get them in at the right time as opposed to them wanting to come back to return it. Um, and we focus a ton of time, energy, and money on training to that. Um, if there's a hole where you couldn't satisfy a customer, then we should private label. Right. Um, but I think there's some, you know, our brand partners do a really good job with a lot of advertising dollars behind it um, and a lot of R&D dollars behind it. Uh, so I think it's you really have to look at how to fill holes on your floor. So if, if you had to crystallize, if there's one thing that the private label brands could do to gain share, it would be basically just look for holes in the, where the big brands, is that? I think, yeah, I mean, I think, I think look at what consumers are looking for and try to, you know, I think our job is to try to satisfy them, you know, in the most, at the best price points. Yeah. So, you know, if you think you can do it better then I then I think private labeling makes sense. I mean, the, the obvious and knock, whatever, you know, the obvious knock on private label is that private label is not going to swing your door, right? So, like that's the other side of the the D to C brand. Uh, you know, basically, in theory, what you're getting with these D to C brands is that they've been pretty good at branding, and they should hopefully, you know, maybe uh, outpunch their weight class in terms of the amount of traffic they bring into your store. Have you seen that happening or do you like, do you believe in that? And, and actually I'm curious in particular to ask you this because as a, as a full line furniture retailer, I know that on, on the one hand, you don't necessarily rely on mattress brands to swing your door because you're able to cross sell mm -hmm. furniture sure. buyers on mattresses. But on the other hand, every person who does come in your door, let's say to buy a mattress, you, is worth more to you because you can attach furniture items to their purchase too. So like, I'm just curious how you view the trade-off between maybe a, a brand that can swing your door, but, but maybe, uh, maybe doesn't offer as quite as much margin yeah. as a private label brand or, um, maybe some of the other advantages that, that other brands could offer. Yeah. I mean, we haven't focused on, we really haven't focused that much on private label too, because we think we have a really pretty diverse and strong setting mix. Yeah, for sure. There's brands that do, I think, a really competent job on marketing, you know, that changes over time. Um, and that's, that's really important. We, we promote brands really heavily. There's, in some cases, you know, hundreds of years of brand equity there. And that's important and really valuable. Uh, so we, we push that really hard. Yeah, but even comparing like D2C to traditional brands, even forget about private label for a moment, like, how, how do the Yeah, I think how does that shake out? I think they all, I mean, I think you want a diverse, we, you want, we have a, a diverse consumer base um, and different brands speak to different people. So our, you know, our job is to, you know, press the levers differently depending on which advertising medium and which consumer. Mm -hmm. But I think there's, there's certainly a place for everyone and they're all different with different strengths. Yeah. Um, and then once you get in the door, I mean, we still do. We, we believe in a comfort cell. Yeah. So, which for us works. Shifting gears again, <laughs> one of the things I, uh, I noticed right away when I got into this industry was it's not the most diverse industry. Um, <laughs> that's probably an understatement, but particularly that may be true on the mattress side too. I'm not sure if it's 
equally the case on the furniture side. But nonetheless, that certainly includes but is not limited to the presence of women and particularly in high ranking uh, positions. Um, I don't want to presume that just because you're a woman, this is like a, a critical issue to you. But do you have a point of view on what can be done to change this and what how the industry might benefit? from having more diversity mm -hmm. or more how the industry might gain from sure. doing that well so mike i'll start with the, the end i think you know the, we all know that the, the consumer is a she so to me the, the benefits are obvious um and i will say uh, you know this is often a conversation within the industry and i will say i've had some fabulous male mentors um so i don't you know i i know mentorship is certainly part of it but i've i've been really fortunate um, and that I've received great mentorship. Um, that being said, I think, you know, if you want the industry to change, you need more examples of leadership of people who look different um, across 20 different variables. So I think it's, I mean, I think it's, it's, we got like everything, it's the hard work of starting at the, starting at the bottom and training people from the bottom and then promoting those that are really qualified. But I think, it, I mean, like everything, it needs to be a, a concerted, focused and you know i came out of the technology industry same issue but yeah. you know when they started really focusing on phd programs and started really trying to attract women then suddenly you end up with more tenured faculty i mean it's just it's the same thing it just takes time energy and focus got so it that's one but i do think that benefits are obvious so okay the, the i'll just shift another abrupt change here but i i also wanted to ask you this podcast kind of provides an opportunity to speak to the industry, speak to other retailers. And one of the things that we think is unique about that is it's an opportunity perhaps for retailers to talk about things that they think could be improved and changed in the industry through perhaps cooperation amongst retailers and between retailers and brands. So to the extent that there's anything out there that you think there's a need for collective change, I think this is, uh, I want to give you the opportunity to, to raise uh, any issues you think that would, would be worth discussing? So there's, oh, there's that. I mean, so I think in general, there's a lot more that we can all do through collaboration that we're all, you know, we're all fighting the same things. But um, one thing we were talking, I mean, the thing we were talking about earlier, which I think is really important is on end of, you know, what, when you get a product uh, mattress back in particular, sort of what do you do with it? Both, I think there's a challenge from a business model perspective um, in terms of how to get pure from, which is what you guys are talking about, but then also just sort of the life cycle of a product. You know, do we create a good product for the foam? Is there, you know, is there technology that could help shred more efficiently? There's, there's a lot there that I think mm -hmm. would benefit all of us and for everyone to be good hurts no one. Um, so I think that's, that's definitely one. Um, and by the way, just on that one, of... just Rachel's referencing mm -hmm. episodes seven and eight of this podcast that if you haven't heard them, we discuss return policies and in particular how to limit the number of products that are returned as one way to address that issue. And then the second issue she was raising is one we haven't tackled on the podcast, which is this question of what more ecosystem can be built to do things, do better things with the products that we ultimately can't avoid being returned. Correct. Thank you. Sorry, I was <laughs> just. <laughs> important. Um, and then, and then on warranties, I think, I don't think anyone's. I think you were what you were saying earlier is also right that people use warranties as a proxy for durability and quality, and I think to coordinate somewhere in that regard would make sense because I think, you know, you'd rather give 
you have real data on a product as opposed to this, you know, like ephemeral thing right. that keeps changing. And then, and then someone's out of whack. I, I just think no one's winning if they're all inconsistent and sort of confusing that I think that just means custom, fewer customers shop for mattresses. I agree. So, better, I better data on actual durability and then shorter warranties. Like the, the warranties end up being this, right. they just end up being setting people up for disappointment because of the way they're written in the first place. And, it should just be about right. having a better metric of, of durability. Well, shorter and, and consistent, because I think you're also saying that the inconsistency breeds lack of trust and kind of inserts some distrust in the entire process for the shopper, which I, I also think is true. Yeah, uh, that, precisely. And I think, you know, at the, at the point of sale, the last thing you want to be talking about is the warranty. Like when this fails, what, what's going to happen? You want to tell them about the great product they just bought and how well they're going to sleep. <laughs> that's a really good point. It's like yeah, uh, point. asking someone to marry you, popping the question with your like uh, prenuptial agreement, like right there. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, man. So that's, that's another one. And then I think just over time, I think as an industry, as in a world, it's a passion of mine. I think we need to think about sustainability um, and how we're impacting the world environment in what ways do you think we're certainly all in that together yeah, for sure in what ways do you think the industry could play a bigger role there i think i mean i think we need to think about what materials we're using you know what end of life looks like there's just the whole host of questions that i just don't see us having a conversation about that's really important and do you think that there's uh how, how, how could that conversation be better facilitated across the industry do you think oh i think that's the role of industry organizations i think I think, it, I mean, I think that's why you have conferences and bring on thought leaders. Um, there's certainly many product categories where this is a conversation. Mm -hmm. And to the extent we learn from them, coordinate with them, et cetera, you know, we'll create better products for it. I mean, I, I started, uh, my one of my first jobs was at the, uh, at the Clinton Foundation working on sustainability. And it turns out the people that were really interested and engaged in it at the beginning were certainly interested in sustainability, but also quickly found out that if you use less, it's cheaper and you can deliver a more uh, cheaper product to consumers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think, and uh, you know, I could give you countless examples and I think that's sort of the conversation we need to have as an industry as well. Right. That makes sense. <laughs> once, uh, once you sort of put the cost savings in there for the, for the industry, it makes it a little easier to swallow maybe. Right. Yeah. My, one of my first projects was on plastic bags, not sexy, but if, if you use enough, it becomes real important real fast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I know you're short on time. I'm going to ask you just one last question. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you think is important? I don't think so. I'm sure. Okay. I did that last question with a bit of a catch-all already, so you, you, I, I thought you probably had a chance to yeah, yeah, that is. incorporate your uh, any other thoughts you had. Well, with that, then I think we will wrap it up. And thank you so much for your time. It's been thank awesome chatting with much, you. Uh, super fun. And thank you all for listening. And please remember, if you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review in the Apple Podcast uh, Store, the iTunes Store. It helps other people discover the podcast. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening. And we're out.